Greetings, humans. You have entered the command zone, your destination for all aspects of Elder Dragon Highlander. Enjoy your stay. Welcome to the command zone. Blah, blah, blah. Do, 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 do. Well, how's it go? <laughs> We've done this before. I don't know the opening is anymore. <laughs> it's uh, your destination for all aspects of Elder Dragon Highlander. Highlander. Enjoy your stay. Studio music, music, music. <laughs> music, music, music. Hey, everybody. How's it going? You're listening to the command zone, your premier destination or whatever it is for all things Highlander, EDA, whatever. Hi, I'm your host, Jimmy Wong. <laughs> how's it? I'm Josh Lee Kwai. Oh, my gosh. Josh, you turned into a robot. It's sexy robot. <laughs> I don't know how I feel Does about. It sound? Yeah. Okay, I'm back. Don't worry. I don't know. I, I maybe I, maybe I need to have the sexy robot as my co-host today. One... Our main topic will be sandbagging. <laughs> it sounds so bad. Oh my gosh. What am I going to do when you're gone for four weeks? Actually, you might be listening to this episode. Josh is just out of the country. I had to record a couple episodes. I'm probably somewhere eating some really good food or maybe like kicking it on the balcony of the cruise ship. I hope you're kicking it. Or I'm at the DMZ uh, getting shot at maybe. (laughs) I hope you're reading book recommendations that our fans have uh, sent in as well. That's probably happening. All those things at the same time. Crap. That means I have to start thinking about an end step now. All right. (laughs) And let's do the episode. (laughs) Uh, so that's right. You heard Josh Bright sandbagging. We're not kidding around. That is the main topic of this episode. Uh, sandbagging is a term you may have heard a lot about uh, just in terms of magic or poker and stuff. Apparently, it comes from hot air balloons. Yeah, there's a little bit of nobody's sure online, but one of the theories is that it comes from when the hot air balloon is on the ground, they use sandbags to hold it down. And then you release the sandbags and then the hot air balloon takes off. Takes off. So that's a possible sand. way where the term came from. I heard it in poker a lot. Sandbagging usually means it's when you check, which is you don't bet, you decline to bet, and then you pass your mm-hmm. chance to bet, and then somebody else bets, and then you raise. That's usually sandbagging. Where you hold back. And then you, you trick them into doing something, and then you you know come over the top. As yeah, it were. people also think sandbagging might mean... And it could mean uh, playing suboptimally, so not playing your absolute best uh, in Magic. In EDH, it has a bit of that and a bit of the poker thing. And a bit it of has the to do with holding balloon. back. Holding back specifically. Not, yeah. It doesn't mean you're not playing optimally. In fact, sandbagging is a way to play a little more optimally in EDH. Um, it's actually one of the more controversial things, and I think a reason that a lot of spikes don't like the format is because like, you have a three drop on turn three. You should by all means play it in a 1v1 game. But sometimes you're like, I'm going to hold this back and not play it till later because it's going to draw me some hate. Yeah, sandbag- as sandbagging piece. as a term definitely has a slight negative connotation. It's like it's something that yeah. like an unscrupulous person would do. Yeah, oh, you're sandbagging, aren't you? You were like, sandbagging uh, me, weren't you? Yeah, yeah it's yeah. like you tricked me, but in a, in a dishonest manner. Yeah, so for EDH, it's, it basically means you're holding cards in your hand. You're holding certain things back and not playing them when you have a chance to. Uh, the opposite of this is, is a new player that as soon as they have the man to play something, they just throw it out there, right? And normally this manifests itself as whereas like they burn you to the face where you're like, eh, you might want to save that for a creature in case yeah. I play it. You know, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, it's a very interesting subject matter. This is something Jimmy brought up and I was like, huh, is that a whole episode? And then the more we sort of talked about it, it was like, yeah, there's a lot there. And a lot of the game turns out is about sandbagging. It's yeah. about... We sequence in such a weird manner in EDH. We don't do it, like you said, you don't play your two drop into your three drop into your four drop. It's just not 
the way to go because efficiency in that manner is not the most likely way to win you the game. It doesn't reward you in the same way it yeah. does where it's like, oh, in a 1v1 game, because you played a 2-drop, a 3-drop, a 4-drop, the opponent is on the back foot the whole time so you can press your advantage. In EDH, it's like you played a 2-drop, 3-drop, 4-drop, and someone played absent. Yeah. Or <laughs> you played 2-drop, 3-drop, 4-drop, and the other three players go, that guy's got a ton of stuff on the board. Let's all gang up and kill him. Yeah, exactly. So it can actually hurt you. It, it doesn't snowball in your favor in the same way that it does on one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah, and in one-on-one -on -one games, usually games are won with creature combat, and that's not something you want to do is just draw unnecessary hate around the board unless you're trying to like play infect and kill people very quickly. You're not trying to just throw your creatures at other people for no good reason. Yeah. In 1v1, I would also say, too, like if you look at the board at a given time, whoever's ahead on board has a higher percentage chance to win that game. Yeah. So there's, there's just not as much give and take. In EDH, somebody can be way ahead and you can look at the board and be like, they're not actually favored to win because yeah. they've done it in a manner where all the other players are now going to gang up on them and they're not ahead enough to take three on one. Yeah, and also if it's a one, yeah, that's a big thing. They're not ahead enough to beat three people on one. And also the other players have implemented the use of sandbagging to right. hold the card that will beat them because they have overextended. Right, yes, that's a very good point. Yeah. It's like they appear weak, but they're not actually weak. Yeah, so let's move on to the main topic, sandbagging. Uh, we're going to address the general idea, go over some situations. There's going to be a fun little like... Uh, it's going to be like role-playing. Yeah, it's going to be a role-playing. Like, like what this. would what would you do? Uh, and of course, every single... T when we get there, I'll talk more about it, but there's no right answer to anything because it's EDH. Yeah, it's it's, it's <laughs> like, well, who's who am I playing with? What are they playing? What yeah, cards exactly. are you? But still. So EDH games are very rarely 1v1. They're almost always focused on the mid to late games. I don't think many games end on turn five or six unless someone just goes infinite. Um, right? I mean, yeah, I agree. we haven't seen many games end that way. One-on-one, -on -one it'll happen. Every once in a while, uh, a three-player game will end quickly. Yeah. But you got double life. You got more players. It's just the games just don't end on turn four, five, six. Yeah, and that's why we always say Boros and Aggro strategies are not that efficient because you just can't win with them because you're playing for the short game. Uh, I'd say the format is one that rewards reaction to stuff more than proactiveness. Usually when it comes to trying to stop someone from winning the game, because in the, the way the King of the Hill works, someone gets on top of the hill. The first person on top of the hill is almost never the person that wins. So being able to react to that or take care of it is really important. Yep, I, I would generally agree. Yeah, uh, we also have lots of cards because it's a singleton format. They do similar things, but not always the same thing. So a Cyclonic Rift has the same effect as a Nev's Disc in that it clears the board of every non-land permanent pretty much. Nev's Disc, the disc is specifically uh, you know, not Planeswalkers. It also does your own <clears throat> stuff. Yeah, and your own stuff as well. But we can't have four ofs of any of these. So certain times we have to make a lot of choices as in what is the best card for this situation, not necessarily a card that solves the situation. And we have to think about things like if I play this card now, and I need this effect again later, mm -hmm. is this the time when I have to use it or should use it, or should I save this effect for when I need it later? Yeah, so exactly. So those are decisions you don't have to make when it's like, well, I could just draw another Cyclonic Rift, so that'll be fine. Yeah, But exactly. we can't do that. We cannot do that. That's why we like Recursion, because you naturally want to have effects in your deck that you want to do more than once, mm -hmm. because you can build your deck around it. So that's why we like to be able to play the same things a few times. Like, if I play my Cyclonic Rift... I, a lot of times I like to have a deck that can get it back for me and play it again. Snapcaster Mage. Yep. Or just something that brings it Regrowth. back to because you can't really... Uh, Eternal Witness. You, you can't overload it with a Snapcaster. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we also play combo decks. That's why we sandbag. We can't just run out one piece of the combo and be like, well, hopefully I draw the other piece at some point. It's like, that creature's not long for this world. And I would say people that play Jeskai Ascendancy, Splinter Twin, that type, they, they, they do this also in competitive magic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the whole Splinter Twin deck is all about 
holding back the key cards until you know you have a safe spot to play it. Yeah, so you're looking for a window. <clears throat> the windows in EDH are just harder to identify because there's so many more players. Mm -hmm. So it's 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 more of an art than a science. Yeah, one of my favorite things about why we sandbag is that other players can take care of our problems for us. Yes, absolutely. That's the big one, right? Or that's you don't know if that's your problem or not. Right, until it starts swinging at you or whatever. Yeah, somebody plays Ulamog, you don't actually know if that's a problem for you. You only know when they declare their attack, mm -hmm. you know, and you can influence that in, in the time between now and before they attack. So, yeah, you have a whole turn cycle sometimes. Yeah, you got a so, lot of words you can say between now and then. Yeah, sandbagging is a very politically strong move as well. So, let's talk about when. When should you sandbag? Um, the first thing I think, and we talked about this before, is you need to ascertain what's going around the table. Like, you need to sort of size up the crowd that you're playing against, both players and the commanders on the table. So, like, how well do you know your play group is the big one. Yeah, I, I think that's a huge part. And as you get to know certain people, there's a lot of things that you'll notice about them. One is what type of per player they are, what, mm -hmm. what psychographic they fit into, but also just are they generally aggressive? Are they generally not? Are they a proactive player? They go out and and interact and do things? Are they a sit-back type of player? Also, you'll notice certain players in your playgroup have certain tendencies towards you and certain other players. So, right. for instance, Craig and Jimmy like to kind of go at each <laughs> other. In general, they're antagonistic. Not always, but they definitely lean that way. So that's, a, that's something you can sort of manipulate to your advantage, right? Yeah. And just also, like, you know if something's going to happen or if it's, it is happening. It's like, okay... I know that Josh's commander is Animar, and I have a white-black deck. This yes. is literally the worst commander for me, but I know that Josh and Alex usually just go at it, or Alex has a commander that really threatens the like Animar from existing because it's all about bounce spells and stuff. Right. So you you know knowing that, you know how to position your cards a little better. Um, looking at the commanders is huge. Is this commander a combo commander? Is it a build around me? Are they just playing five color? We have no idea what's coming out of that deck. Well, and it's, if it's your playgroup, you know most of their decks. So, right. you know, you know the engines, what the key pieces are, what it is they're trying to do. Like, all that stuff, this is meta stuff. It it determines your decision-making process. Yeah, and I'd say the big one is you know what instant <clears throat> speed things they have to do. And that, that usually is the one thing you should pay the attention to the most, I think, at a commander game. Because all onboard threats you'll see coming, unless they cheat something out at haste speed or whatever and, and get you with it. But usually it's like, okay, I know he plays this counter and it costs this much mana and he loves to do it to this kind of card there's a military quote i don't know exactly where it comes from but it goes something like attack your opponent from an angle they don't expect at a time they don't expect surprise is the key to victory mm -hmm. speed is the key to surprise so for the soldier speed is life ah i like that and it's true being able to be I mean, that's the proactive part. That's why instants are so great is because they can come in a point where you are have limited ability to react to them. Right. You so. can't react to everybody. Like, the game's not set up so that you can have four answers ready for the four different players. Right. So using an answer at a time when then you don't have to use it, the opportunity cost is I now don't have it available to me when somebody actually does attack me. So when somebody plays that Ulamog, if you go to answer it right now when you don't know if it's a threat to you, then you're wasting an answer you might need for a, a real threat that's actually going to attack you. Because if they're going to yeah. attack somebody else with that Ulamog, you don't need to waste anything on it. You see this in world politics a lot. Like, uh-oh, North Korea is trying to build a nuke. Can they fly it to the U.S.? Not yet. Okay, right. it's not a huge issue for us, so we're going to do sanctions. Or we're going to, like, politically talk to them in a way that, you know, stops them from launching whatever. 
as opposed to like they have something we should immediately go after them and be proactive about it and actually that did happen with america and we started a whole war and we've done this a few times now but we won't talk about that here but but we're looking for our ability to respond to threats yeah exactly but we're not going to preemptively respond to a th- to something that's just threatening it yeah. actually has to be doing something so that's generally a good policy in edh i see this a lot especially with newer players which is the need to answer a threat that they don't know if it's a threat yet because right. in regular magic somebody plays an ulamog it's always a threat because you're one-on-one there's nobody else that can attack yeah but in our format they play it it actually might be on your side because it might be attacking one of the other people and mm-hmm. if it is if it's not attacking you then it's actually helping you yeah it's like your loaded gun that you can help point around the table or you're like you're like like spinning the crank so that the canton goes somewhere else and fires at someone else exactly um Another big thing is have a plan. And Marshall and LSV and Brian and all those guys on limited resources talk about this a lot. Um, every deck when you build it should have a plan. Usually it's based around the general. Like if you're a Rafik deck, your goal is to hit someone in the face with Rafik or any other creature that has double strike and take advantage of that effect and make them unblockable and try and kill them really quickly. That's just the basic plan of the deck. You know what you're doing. You know what the goal of each card is. Uh, in a more complex deck, each card, if it's like a reactive answer, like let's say you have a Black Sun Zenith, a board wipe that is very specific in that puts minus one, minus one counters on on things, and you know that Josh is playing Marchesa. This card hoses Marchesa yep. or persists things and stuff. So like you don't want to use that card as just a general board wipe if you don't have to. So know why you're casting a card before you cast it. Don't just sort of run stuff out there and know how you're going to win the game and what colors specifically are going to stop you from doing that. I think those are all super good points. Um, the Marchesa thing is really indicative of, of a good way to play and to think about playing is like, I've got this board wipe answer, but it's actually a very specific answer to a very specific thing that's probably likely to occur later in this game. Mm-hmm. And therefore, that the value of that card is way more later than it is now. So it's incumbent upon me to wait until then and to have the discipline to not play it. Right. You know, because I have other answers in my deck to the other things that are happening, but I may only have a couple to that specific thing that's going to happen. So yeah, yeah, it's very important to sculpt your plan in a way that takes into account all the other things that are happening on the board and that can happen. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's just a great card because it's one of those that can be a partial board wipe, etc. It's like you put it in your deck for a reason and if you're not playing against a deck that's going to abuse plus one, plus one counters and stuff... And then it's just a regular wipe, just a board regular wipe, and board you can just wipe. fire yeah. it off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think this is the reason we talk about versatility so much in EDH is because you want all these things because the amount of situations that you're going to come in contact with in a regular game of EDH with four or five players is so much that you can't right. ever really predict what they are and you just want a variety of answers so that you do have a few silver bullets in your deck. Yep, exactly. Um, another big thing is what turn is it? You sand back a card if it's like turn three <laughs> and you need it by turn 10 more. Early turns are so much different than late turns in the game uh, just because sometimes the board gets wiped, sometimes it gets reset. Sometimes the thing that you're so worried about in turn five that dealt you 10 damage is not going to exist in another few seconds because someone is going to get rid of something else that's problematic on somewhere else on the board. You know, right. like Just because the threat that's staring you down is the only... like. If someone's going straight after you with that Ulamog, everyone's going to be like, all right, it's his problem to deal with, not ours. But at the same time, someone else could be doing something that's ridiculously crazy. They have doubling season now, and they're doing something. And that's going to compel them to board wipe. And that helps you as a person that's facing down the Ulamog. So maybe you don't actually need to get rid of it at instant speed because it's going to happen either way. And it's so early in the game that you're going to want something later on 
that's going to be more threatening in the late game when you're at two life as opposed to 30. Yeah, it's also the reason why things like Cyclonic Rift almost never, it's almost never correct to not overload it. Right. You know, to just, in a normal game of Magic of one-on-one, it's often correct to just use it right now. Get that one essential blocker out of the way. And then keep rolling. But in yeah. our format, the, the impact of overloaded Cyclonic Rift is so huge that it doesn't really make any sense most of the time to fire it off unless you're literally going to die if you don't. Like, yeah, exactly. That's the only reason you wouldn't overload it. So, Yeah, the difference between the two mana cost and the seven mana cost is huge in Commander. And mm-hmm. just because you can run out and turn two, a lot of players think that, like, well, I can, so I should. It's like that card should just read cost seven mana and then below it say underload one in the blue don't use this unless you underload. absolutely have to <laughs> right like I, d- I like this idea of what turn it is because i've never really thought about it until now but i i when i'm playing i have this internal clock in my head and right around turns eight nine ten mm-hmm. that's the that's where the the alarm is sort of you know it's like battle stations everybody right. <laughs> because this is a part of the game where the bad stuff that ends the game can start happening yeah. So once you're in that corridor, once you're past turn 8, 9, 10, that's when you really need to start worrying about setting up your win conditions and stopping other people's win conditions. Yeah, that's that's really the big one because here's the thing. If someone does play an infinite combo and three people around the table just don't have an answer for it, you're not the only one losing. Everyone is. At a certain point, you have to know that, okay, I need to hold this up because they're playing kiki-jiki. And right. I, if I don't have an answer for it, I can't reliably rely on the mono black player to have one either, you know? Right. Um, instant speed and sorcery speed is another big topic here. A lot of people just run out instants on their main phase. And I've noticed this in a lot of limited gameplay. I've noticed this in a lot of just regular EDH gameplay. And if you don't have to cast something at that very moment, don't cast it. It's like we said, you don't know if you'll ever have to for that specific thing. Yeah, exactly. If they play Consecrated Sphinx and they're drawing a bunch of cards... If they've drawn six or seven cards, I often will be like, it's just not worth it now for me to for yeah. me to get that thing. And I'm, I will if I have to, but let's see if these other two players try and take care of it first. Yeah, or if you know that like they play the Sphinx and like you know that, like crap, if they draw more cards right now, then it's like, okay, I should. I do it right I do now. Do it right now, yeah. yeah. As opposed to like, otherwise it's like, okay, they have zero cards in their hand. They might draw a few more, but I'm already drawing a bunch of cards over here. I'm not that worried about them, et cetera. It's like you have to really judge it from case to case. Um, also, like, if you hold up mana with the right colors, you, in your hand, could have any card in the history of Magic in those colors. Yeah, so, they have no way to know. They have no way to know, so why reveal it, um, you know, unless you absolutely have to? I think Counterspell is a big one for this. Like, don't counter when they're looking, tutoring for something. Counter when they play the thing they tutor for. Yeah, most of the time I'd say that's right, because you actually get the tutor out of their hand, too. Yeah, exactly. It, they could still draw the other card. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the deck, I guess, or what the situation is, it's, but most of the time I think that's pretty smart. Yeah. It's also what you say. We talked about this in the Politrix episode, which is like if somebody, let's say they have that Ulamog and they they go, okay, I'm going to attack. And you go, hold on. Are you attacking me with that? Yeah. Whether you have the answer or not. And now it's like a lot of times they're just going to be like, well, no, 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 no. I'm not uh, going to attack yeah, you. Yeah. Don't worry about it. And you're Literally, like, okay, fine. You're just asking a question makes yeah. them like, think oh, that you have why something. Why would they ask yeah. that question? Yeah. But if you have no mana open, you can't ask that question because mm-hmm. they're like, what can you do? Yeah. 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 Slash, you hit me last turn. Now I uh, will get my retribution or whatever. My Annihilator 4 retribution. Yeah, exactly. Um, Usually you get the most value out of an instant if you wait till that moment before they declare attackers or at the end step. 
usually those are the best moments because then you get a very small period of time where you're tapped out for that stuff and you untap immediately. Sometimes it is right. I will say this to cast an instant during your main phase. Yep. For instance, when everyone else is tapped out mm-hmm. and you just have to get this Or boat. just the blue players tapped out. The blue out. players tapped out, yeah, and you have to overload your cyclonic growth now or they're just you know they're going to counter it, that sort of thing. Um, I, I think of this as akin to like those little bamboo cups in like Kill Bill in the in that first movie with like yeah. the doop, 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 where they fill up the water and they tilt over at the right time. Yeah. Like that's what you should be doing with your instants and like counter spells and stuff. You should be like waiting for the optimal time to cast it. And then when it's like right there and tilting over, you're like, boom, here we go. I like this analogy. Yeah. I was like, where are we going with this? Okay. Yeah. It's yeah. like cups half full, you empty it, and then like the water keeps pouring, you're like, crap, I oh, the deluge. I didn't realize it was still gonna happen. I need the to toxic like, deluge. The toxic deluge, yeah, exactly. Um I also like doing this. You take some time on someone's end step, even if you don't have anything in your hand. I think it's a really fun little Just think trick. about it. Yeah, just be like, hold yep. on, end step, and then be like, I'm good. Yeah, you I do it a lot. Yeah, yeah for sure. Because they know you have something, and they don't know exactly what it is. Yeah. And it might be a kill spell. And then it makes it way more believable later when you go, hey, wait, who are you talking with that? Yeah, exactly. Okay, you can go to combat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, especially if you do this after a tutor then they really don't know what you have. And they know you for sure took something. And if they have the biggest was... threat on the board, they naturally assume like, well, he must've got something to deal with this thing. Yeah. 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 It's a fun little ally. Uh, politicking has a lot to do with sandbagging as well. I like your tactic of just, Hey, how's it going over there? It's kind of like, eh, it's all right. It always works on some level. It's amazing. Everybody even knows it now and yeah. I still do it and it still works. Yep. Yeah, it's just very hard. Just to... like basic human empathy. Yep. Where she's like, "Oh, Josh isn't having a good time over there." He's. Yeah. It's stuff's not going perfect for yeah, it's him. It's kind of like when you look towards that part of the table, it's just kind of fuzzy. You don't really see the person there. Like, yeah. maybe I should focus on something else. <laughs> um, pointing out, like we said, Paula tricking. Pointing out someone else that's going off can definitely get the uh, like, "Hey, how about you guys unload the threats?" Like, I'm not playing white. I don't have that board wipe. Like, I just like to go. We lost everybody. Yeah. <laughs> that's saying I have nothing. And if you don't, we're dead. We're dead. Yeah, yeah. I, I just like, like to do that all the you time. You immediately ask other people, like, Can you you're not actually out? asking them to do stuff because people don't like to respond to that. But if you go, I'm sorry, guys, we lost. Yeah. <laughs> like, sorry, guys, I can't. I can't. That's like, like me saying I can do nothing, and I'm assuming you can't either because you haven't. When you do do something earlier because it was about to murder you or whatever, and you're like, I use my thing on it. I don't have anything. I saved us last time. Yeah. One of you has to save us this time. A lot of times, though, it is actually straight just straight desperation for me. It's like, I actually don't have anything in mm-hmm. my hand, so please, someone do something. Yeah. Uh, and that itself, I mean, people recognize the inherent threat of something that is going to end the whole game, so that will help out quite a bit. Um Timing is very important to politics as well. Uh, like everyone has different objectives at different parts of the game. Like, oh, it's time for me to assemble my combo. Oh, it's time for my Voltron guy to be hexproof and unblockable. Um, so knowing when that's happening and knowing be- being able to point out that pattern. Like, if you know when their alarm's going off and they have to finish, you can let everyone else know that it's happening for them. Yeah, for sure. And and this is another player who's doing what you're doing, right? Because they're sandbagging because they have a win condition, yeah, exactly. a combo, a something they're trying to set up. And identifying like, oh, he's trying to do something here. He's been very careful about how he tapped his mana mm-hmm. and what he played. And you can often tell, like, let's say that Marchesa deck, that they're playing around a counterspell, they're playing around something, and they didn't play Marchesa when they could. They waited until they had three extra mana available yeah. so that they could hold up a counterspell. You know, you can tell, and it's like, uh-oh, something's about to go off over there. Yeah, they wouldn't have been playing this way otherwise. Yeah. So you can read into how other people do it. For instance, someone always holds up a certain amount of mana each turn. You can probably assume that they have a counterspell, because they wouldn't do that if they didn't have one, because they're just not using their mana efficiently. Right. Like, if they could have played another spell, and they're like, no, I'd rather fake having a counterspell this whole time. It's like, usually that's not what they're going for. That can tell you, too, like, I need to hold two answers now. 
Right. You know, people, a lot of times we get the question of like, how do you beat this card? How do you beat Deadeye Navigator? How do you beat... You need two answers. Yeah. You know, you need two instant speed answers. It's funny how the, there's a huge gap between one and two. Yeah. People think that just having... It's like, oh, they can stop the first thing because Glenn Lenders on the board. It's like, uh, trust me, they can... You need two. Yeah, just have two. Yeah, have two you need two. people have one or and you, you can, have two. Yeah, exactly. You can go be like, listen, does anybody else have an instant speed answer? Because we, the two of us can do this mm-hmm. if we just work together. And a lot of times that'll work. You just have to recognize those those spots. And don't fire off your one answer when you, it's clear that they have an answer to your answer. Yeah. Or if you know that you don't have someone else that will ally with you in that case and help finish it off for real. Right. Um, also, like, knowing certain cards that you play will force people to think, like, oh, like like Josh said, the whole game's over thing. Like, you should sandbag those cards until you can effectively put the game over. Because someone saying game's over and someone looking at your table and going, yep, I agree – that's the worst because you know for sure no one is no no one's gonna be like ah let's not go with him he's fine let him get one more turn to really assemble the combo <laughs> it's like no we have to deal with that immediately so make sure that you don't do something that's so broad and you can't follow up on it we had a game uh, just the other night where I got like the high priest of penance out with yeah. like a indestructible and a pariah on it and and then I got a pestilence out and it was basically like if somebody couldn't answer it in the next turn or two it was over mm-hmm. and you did the thing. It's over, guys. And everybody looks around, and then it made it a rotation of the table. Nobody did anything. No, did and anything. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to win. Because yeah. <laughs> if they would have done it by now if they could have. And, you yeah. know, I, I picked my spot for it all to happen. But, yeah, that, well, that's... you picked your spot well. Yeah, and that's... Clearly, you sandbagged to the right moment where they you had, they had the least amount of chance of, of doing anything and that, it. And that's the important part, right, is I didn't actually put out any of those cards. I, I had all three of them in my hand for turns and turns. Yeah. And I was just looking for, okay, it can't be countered. They don't have a lot of cards. A big threat was just answered in this way. It's unlikely that... Yeah. You know, if, you, if you've if got something, let's say it's based on an enchantment, like you have a really important enchantment, doubling season, it's good to wait if another powerful enchantment's out and if they it takes them a little while and then they answer it. Yeah. They would have answered it earlier if they had the answer. So now you know there's only... They don't have any enchantment answers in their hand, and then so then that's a good time to play. And sometimes it. you're the one that's putting out another powerful enchantment. Yep. That you like. You you're can, like, this is to test the waters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's funny because I do that a lot, and like when you, I remember one point in the next game we played, you had two counter spells, and I think in your hand you had Glenelendra and the counter spell in your hand. I was like, well, I have to literally play three things. Yep. In my hand, and still have man to play the the fourth one that I really want to play. And I had four cards, and I knew I could sequence it in a way that like the person was like, "I try to remove that or whatever." Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. I do this counter. I do that. But counter. I didn't have enough man to do it all. So yeah, like that. that. Ah, darn. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have a mana crypt or whatever. But I, I think that's a really good thing to do, and as part of sandbagging, also is like I have this card I want to play, but I have another card in my deck that is good. And they'll probably want to get rid of it or counter it. Yeah. But it's not as good as this other card. So I'll play that one first, see what happens, and then... Yeah, exactly. It all sort of goes to, towards your same goal, and you're just testing the waters. A lot of it is waiting to save up until you can do all that stuff at once, too. Like, don't play your doubling season, say go. Yeah. It's better to say, wait until you have enough mana to go doubling season, play the Planeswalker ultimate. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's definitely what you want to do if you're trying to do that with the Planeswalker. Doubling season is one of those cards that's very hard to play correctly, because you see it all the time where people just try and play it out there and you can't it everybody knows that card will just win the game and so right. you need to do the thing where you play it and do something that abuses it in the same turn yeah i mean sometimes i mean because the problem with doubling season and token decks is you can play it at any time and it'll do work no matter what you just have to figure out where your win your win condition is coming in 
Also notably, if you have an alliance with someone and you're going to play that game-winning doubling season, it doesn't mean that the person you have an alliance with isn't going to counter it. They're going to if it's going to if they're going to die too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah there's no like I'm going to kill everyone but you. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> uh, yeah, right. Um, and the big thing is like, ask yourself before you play any card, what is going to happen if this doesn't resolve? What am I going to do? What's my contingency plan if it doesn't resolve? And if it's like I have no other contingency plan, then you probably shouldn't play the card. Unless it's Unless literally you know like you can protect I'll it. die. Yeah, exactly. Like, I have no choice. But a lot of times, yeah, you see people fire off things where it's like, why did you play it right then? You know, that's not when you have to play it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much hidden information in, in Commander, so much card draw and stuff that it's always important to uh, to think about that kind of stuff. All right, when should we not sandbag? Second part of this discussion. Uh, certain cards should always be played on curve. Like, Solemn Simulacrum. I think if you have four mana and you're not playing that card... Why? Why not? Well, in cards like Solemn, you have Oracle written down here, Oracle of Moldiah. That's mm-hmm. a good one. Stuff like Wood Elves. Um, if if something happens and they get stopped, it your deck is not contingent upon that card. Right. right? You're not building, building, building to Solemn Simulacrum. It's just that's not how decks work. So mm-hmm. the worst case scenario is they use a card on it. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Big deal. You know, but Cyclonic Rift is a sort of semi-win condition, mm-hmm. and so you don't want to fire that off and have it not work because you might not have a great fallback plan. Or yeah. Insurrection. Insurrection, you resolve it. You probably are going to win or at least knock out a couple of people, and so you have to be carefuler with those. Whereas, like, Oracle of Moldiah, if you don't play it out on turn four, then it's not doing what it's supposed to do. So... If you sandbag it until turn nine, who cares? At that point, it's worthless anyway. Yeah, and it also, in general, like you have to think what is safer on this board. Lands, it, in general, depending on your meta, of course, uh, are safer than mm-hmm. creatures. Mm-hmm. So playing a card that gets you more lands, it's kind of a, a win-win in that case. You're not, it's something you're pretty sure you're going to get to keep. Yeah, exactly. And you're not too worried about if someone does get rid of the creature that gets you the land, it's not like you're like, oh, what a major setback. I needed that creature to really synergize with my general. It's like it, it had some synergies. Animar and Wood Elves has some synergies, but you don't need Wood Elves to make Animar like a beat a beat down. Animar is actually a really good um, example because you almost always want to play Animar on turn three. Right. Uh, rare among generals. A lot of generals, you want to pick your spot. You don't want to play, you know, Jaleva at the first possible chance. Right. Yeah, you have to make sure. Or, uh, you want, or yeah, you want Swift Foot Boots. You want some Haste Enabler. You want to be able to attack Stack with them. on the, deck Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. You want to know what's on top of your deck. So, But Animar, you actually want to get going, get counters on, start rolling, start playing creatures for free as soon as possible. Yeah. So playing Animar on turn three, just straight into like, hey, listen, if you can kill him, you can kill him. That's fine. I'll play him on turn five then is just uh, the right way to play them, I think, most of the time. Yeah, because you really need to get the counters on them and get them going. Um, also, I'd say, in general, enchantments and artifacts are safer than creatures. In general, this doesn't include doubling season and the big ones. Enchantments specifically? Enchantments specifically can be huge, oh my gosh, or huge, like, what does that do? Eh, whatever, it's fine. And it's just, if you play two or three, then it's just really hard to keep track of all of them, and a lot yeah. of people will just be like, whatever, they're going to compartmentalize that and be like, I'll deal with that problem eventually. Yeah. <laughs> exactly so know exactly whether or not what you're playing is going to be drawing a lot of hate i think even playing like a soul ring early doesn't no one's going to like spend spot removal on getting rid of your their soul ring generally no because it's very kind of rarely stinks. see that it stinks yeah and it's just like you know they're going to put themselves in the place where hopefully they draw the ire of other players enough that i didn't need to remove their soul ring at all and i can save it for their Acroma's memorial the one that's really going to hammer down on me it's also 
If they soul ring turn one, nothing else has happened in the game yet, right? So if I go and destroy your soul ring... Oh, you've made an enemy for the entire game. Now you and I are fighting and probably not going to win the game because yeah. you and I are going to just take each other... We're going to just be socking at each other, and when we're li- whichever one of us wins that fight is going to be taken out by the other people. Yeah, yeah and so. sometimes playing... If you play a soul ring like turn six, and it's like, holy crap, that's that extra man that he needs to play this or to activate that ability, then it's a case where you need to get rid of it. But in general, it's kind of like when you tutor for a card. You don't kill the soul ring, you kill the thing that puts out. It's better than tutor, though, because it works for every card you're going to play from then out. Yeah, exactly. Soul ring's really hard to deal with. Um, we talked about this, the legality of it, or possibly getting banned in a previous episode. But yeah. it's, it's a sort of a special case, and it's... All of this is one of the reasons why it's so good, even in multiplayer. Yeah, and of course, you should also not sandbag your cards if you have to deal with an immediate threat or if you're going to lose the game and you have to do something about it, then don't sandbag because then you lose. (laughs) I think that's the game. Yeah, that's self evident. (laughs) Um, you can build a lot of goodwill with sandbags. Sometimes it's like you said, like you have two, you have two board wipes in your hand. No one else knows that but you. You could play your one board wipe, be like, I did it. I, I had to waste my board wipe there, guys. Like, yep. You don't have to be like, you're welcome, and rubbing their faces, but just like, people will give you a little goodwill for doing stuff like that because to them, it's like, good, he wasted his card or her card. One thing I like to do is just say something like, I really don't want to do this. This doesn't seem like a good use of this card, but but I, she's getting too scary, and then play it. And now it's like, you didn't ask anybody for any goodwill but they knew you just did something you really maybe didn't even have to yeah it's amazing what that can do also i mean if your card gets countered it's even better because then people are like wow he really wasted it yeah dang you couldn't (laughs) even do the effect like guess i have i have to board wipe now and then when you go listen guys i tried but we have to do something and by we i mean you because i just tried and failed yeah no so i'm tapped out i love me mana i have one card down come on you know that's like what should be going through you don't have to say all these things necessarily but people if they're in tune with what's going on will know what's going on um and of course know know your deck and know what things you can use that cost you the least in terms of like hurting you in the long game so if you're like i have one board wipe in here and it's in my hand you probably shouldn't play it unless you really really need to if you have multiple board wipes and you know you can draw one or tutor for one if you really need it in a pinch then this isn't as much of a pressing issue Mm mm-hmm so know your deck really well. Know other people's deck as well because you can sometimes call out someone on it. Be like, hold on, you have a tutor on the board. You can find this or whatever. So you can influence play in small, small ways like that too. Well, and know the color pie. So then yeah. you don't have to know every card that exists, but you can know the types of cards that they could possibly have. A yeah. lot of times you're looking at the player with the blue and being like, can you counter that? We should counter that. And by mm-hmm. we, I mean you because I'm not playing blue. <laughs> you know, Or can you, if you look at the white player maybe and be like, can you, can you exile that? Because we need or that's an artifact or enchantment i'm playing red yeah can you do something because we're going to lose i would also argue that if you're blue and you're playing counter spells and you're the one that's kind of got that burden you shouldn't put it in a way that's like i'm gonna say no to this it's more i'm countering this for the good of all of us kind of thing like you don't want to put that burden on yourself because if you're the one that's dropping counter spells you're gonna draw a lot more individual hate from the person playing the card whereas you could be buffering it with support from the rest of the table for what you're doing I As dig it. Should be. Unless it's it. like someone like tries to path here, a giant general, and be like, I'm doing this for the good of the table. Counter. <laughs> We're like, wait a second. You can't. It's just like we talked about in the politics episode. You just, you can't use these tricks all the time. Yeah. You just pull them out once in a while and you got to be subtle. But yeah. Subtlety is key. Um, let's talk about some situations. So we're just going to deliver some very basic situations. And again, forewarning, there is no 100% solid answer to any of these because every table is different. But this is just a way to get inside our minds and how we would start to think about making decisions, yeah. which is, you know, predicated on so many outside things that uh, 
just a, it's similar to the streaming thing we were talking about, how it's mm-hmm. interesting to see how other people think about and, and make their decisions in the game. And, you know, just by hearing that, it can help you, not by emulating, just by, oh, this is another way I might add to my toolbox. Yep. And processing it. Yeah. All right. So situation number one, opponent has Kiki Jiki on the table. Let's say they're oh, playing crap. They're playing a five color deck and they have Kiki Jiki. Oh, out. it's not even Kiki Jiki wasn't even the general? Yeah, Kiki is just in the main deck. All okay. Right? You have an instant speed removal spell and you have a counter spell and you have the mana to play both of them if you want to. Okay. Your opponent plays demonic tutor. What should you do? Um stuff I would think about. How much open mana do they have after they play the tutor? Mm-hmm. If they have twelve might be worth killing Kiki right there mm-hmm. because there just might be too many things they could play in succession that I might not be able to handle it. Right. Let's say they have three open mana. In that case, I'm probably going to wait because there's unlikely that I can that they can play in three things because I can counter one and I can kill Kiki. Mm-hmm. So they have to be able to do a third thing. So, And I'm really worried about the infinite thing. If it's not infinite, I'm not as worried about it. Correct. Kiki does have that specific thing. Is like Kiki Jiki is not like a, like a fate stitcher. Kiki Jiki goes infinite right so if they drop midnight guard right i you have to either remove kiki or counter spell and you have to do it in the right order with what's on the stack correct um so that's that's what's scary about kiki and why a lot of open mana means that when the tutor's still on the stack i'd probably get rid of them depending on is kiki their only their creature out yeah well for now yeah but let's say they drop i don't know cloud goat ranger and they make another one and just get a bunch of free kithkin Depending on my board state, I'm probably not as worried about that. Yeah, absolutely. So. Like if it's minor value from it. In fact, I would actually wait on my kill spell to see to cast it when they try to resolve whatever they tutored for. If right. it was for Kiki, because if it was Cloud Goat, you'd be like, "All right, fine, resolve." If it was uh, Pestermite, then then you could counter the Pestermite or remove Kiki Jiki in response. I think right. removing Kiki Jiki is the correct win because you're just is- scared there, depending on how much mana. Because what if they've got Force of Will? They're you know they're in a five color deck or spa- or Swan Song or Pact or of Negation. Yeah, or any, Pact yeah. of Negation and a Force of Will there is really really scary because mm-hmm. that's two counters and you're basically dead. Yeah. So if they have those two things though, two counters like that, you're dead no matter what you do there. So I would still wait. I would still wait. I'd also look around the table and be like, notice what is happening right now. We're like, going to die. It's like, we can let this demonic tutor resolve, and then we always have to make sure, because he may not play it out this turn, because he might, you know, the opponent could be holding a protection for Kiki. Maybe yeah. that's what he tutored for, in which right. case, like, dang. <laughs> yeah, if he tutors for a counter spell, you're, you will, and he already had one in hand, yeah. and he already or had he the had Pestermite. The piece in his hand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a lot of things to think about there. It would, I think it would almost 100% determine how much mana they've got left mm-hmm. and what colors they were. Five color, it's really scary. I might just remove them. Yeah, I like it. All right, situation number two. You have Grave Pact or a Dictate of Erebos on the board post-wiping it. Someone else wiped it because they're like, my gosh, every time you sack a creature, we all have to sack one. I'm just so going to wipe kill the board. All creatures, kill yeah. everything, yeah. Um, and especially Marchesa because Marchesa keeps coming back and you keep sacking her the stuff and it's annoying. Now, you have enough mana to replay Marchesa. She's your commander. But the opponents around the table all have open mana. Some of them all have blue mana open. You know that if she survives one turn cycle, you're going to lock down the board because you have some kind of combo in your hand or just some ability to generate tokens and make everyone sack their creatures thanks to Dictate. Do you play Marchesa? Absolutely not. (laughs) Yeah, this one to me is no question because she doesn't do you a ton of good just her out there either. Yeah. Because you got to get a counter on her. Yep. She's the type of card that you play and then do something 
to you, protect her immediately. To protect her immediately. And also you'd hope to already have your other creature out. You'd really want it to already have a counter if you could, or at least it could attack and get dethroned. Mm-hmm. And then you sack it for the grave pack thing. So there's just too much you need to set up for Marchesa to work there. It's just too easy, even if she doesn't get countered, for her to just get killed. In which case, there's not even any other creatures that you get value out of from Grave Packs at that time because everybody got wiped. And yeah, it just doesn't feel like a good spot to play her. Yeah, especially if someone wiped the board because of you, you should be the last person to reinitiate action. It's like, well, we just won the war or won the battle. Why are they immediately going after this again or whatever? Like, are they crazy? Like, why are they why are they going after it? Yeah, so except hard you again? do have grave packs still out on the table. It's true. I mean, you can. So, sometimes I would want to have something. I, if if yeah. you had something else in your hand, you could just play a creature. Now they might not want to attack you because you can sack it or you can just block, and then everybody sacks a creature again. Yeah. Grave pack's still powerful. So if it's I had still it, powerful. It's going to draw you a lot of hate. You have to figure out how to mitigate that hate and still sort of perform your goal which is i need to eventually rebuild my board so don't play marchesa first in that case yeah because the way they can really stop you is you put her out they kill her again and now she's just so expensive that it's yeah. hard to ever play her and do something she doesn't else. have any of those experience counters or whatever right? oh man that's gonna be sweet yeah Maybe, uh, possibly possibly <laughs> situation number three it's turn six you've just got enough man to overload cyclonic rift an opponent just put 50 tokens on the board without haste when do you cast your rift uh, depends on what color the opponent's playing. Right. If they're playing blue, then they're tapped out now. I probably do it. If they're not, if they're not in blue, then I probably wait and see who they attack with those creatures. Or you know, they might play Crater Hoof and attack everybody. In which case, but I'm not. I'm holding Cyclonic Rift up. I'm not going to tap out or anything. Right. So you would actually choose not to play any spells in your turn if yes. you're afraid of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think the situation also changes if they have like a, an Ashnod's altar on the board. Because mm. then it means next turn they could pump out something gigantic. But again, but without, you can still bounce it. You can still bounce it, correct. But without having haste, that's the big one. And the other thing is you don't want to overload Cyclonic Rift because it'll just sack in response. Mm-hmm. So you have to know how specific interactions work with instant speed stuff. You're like, do they have a way to use their tokens in a way that if I do something, they'll just respond to it by using the tokens in that way? Right. Or do you That's wanna... why sack outlets are so powerful. Something like Perilous Forays that lets you go get lands with those tokens by sacking mm-hmm. them for one mana each is very powerful because you still retain some value when they do things like Cyclonic Rift. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But also, I wouldn't want to get rid of that. There's something on the board... And it can kill my opponents. Yeah. And, and it also will draw cards out of their hand. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, I can answer this at any moment. If they don't have a haste enabler and they don't attack me, I'm fine. And if they do, Cyclonic Rift is going to do what it's going to do. It's yeah. still going to work. It'll so, punish them. Yeah. And it, if if I'm the second person in line that killed someone before me, great. Yep. Uh, they just did more work for me and the other players at the table. And somebody who doesn't have Cyclonic Rift has to play a regular board wipe or something anyway during their turn so you're gonna know yeah yeah all right situation number four is really simple you've got doubling season you can play it should you <laughs> it just really depends what else i've got and how much mana so if i've only yeah. got five mana then almost always no never yeah yeah if i've got 12 mana and i can place doubling season and something that makes you know 20 tokens or a planeswalker even then ultimate. it's probably not right to do unless i have the haste enabler yeah so if i have Something that's going to allow me to go get anger and put it in my yard this turn, I'll do that and I'll wait till next turn to play doubling season and then the thing. Sometimes you even wait two turns just so you can also have a counter spell up or something to do to make sure that doubling season stays around. Really know? good point. It's one of the reasons I love Swan Song, Pact mm-hmm. of Negation, because they 
give you that ability without extra mana cost. Without people looking at your board and be like, he only has one blue up, or he has no mana up. Oh, yeah. he can't counter this. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, really, really important. Um, doubling Season is just like that, and there are a few other cards in that realm of must be dealt with, yep. or just make everyone's eyes focus in on it, that you really have to be careful when you play cards like that. Really judge what's going around the table and look before you take action. I'm sure there's a Sun Tzu quote that mimics... Go listen to episode number two. Yeah, it's all there. Ah, don't listen to it. I'm sure it's horrible. I don't know. It was kind of cool. It was like, wow, what a cool structured episode. Yeah, I just meant we were so green at that point. Like... Yeah, I think Green. we sort of talk. I was like still this. pretty red at we that point. We talk like this, and we just sort of like mumble, a lot <laughs> and we don't have a lot of energy, and we're like, "Yeah, that's a good card." Yeah, I really liked. So, how, situation uh, number five is you've got Swords to Plowshares and Path to Exile <laughs> in hand, and in uh, hand. yeah, and it's th- there's a gigantic threat, and it's staring down the table. How should you play it, Jimmy? Um, it's interesting you ask me, Josh. Uh, <laughs> this is horrible. <laughs> so, how was your week? <laughs> just compound it all together. Uh, yeah, this is situation five. We've talked about this before, and this is actually why i bring i this almost this entire episode was based off of watching a game unfold in front of me where (laughs) cards were being misplayed left and right and then the next game i was like guys remember how i was right about this thing it's like this guy's planning something he's gonna have a go off and was like man i'm just gonna play my spells next turn the person goes i'm like oh my gosh guys i said it i said it (laughs) why did you you were so frustrated i was frustrated i got really salty uh because I thought the game was going to go over, be over much faster because someone had like an onboard like, okay, time to kill people. Yeah. I'm like, oh, sweet. All right, cool. Like, yeah, my, like, let's do it. Anyway, so Swords of Plowshares, Path to Exile, two of the best cards in white for EDH and just in general. Uh, because they're instant speed because and they take care of... And they cost one mana. Yep. They're super cheap. This means you can play this on turn one all the way to turn a billion, mm-hmm. uh, which means you shouldn't play it just because you can. Um, think about like... Like, for instance, if something's coming at you and it's just a 12-12 and it's giant, you don't swords it if you have a 1-1 that can stand in the way or if you have a solemn similar come that's going to get you value from blocking and you have more chances to draw into another Or answer. even a lot of times I will literally chump block with a reasonable creature that I would rather keep, mm-hmm. but the swords is valuable enough that I won't. In that game you're talking about, he swords to something, and I'm playing the Child of Alara deck. Right. Child of Alara is a card you want to swords to plowshares so that it doesn't wrath the entire everything. Yeah, exactly. So you know already, because it's in the command zone, that that's just a card that you have to worry about that game. So it's just good to keep in mind those things where it's like a big creature coming at me. I have a lot of cards in my deck that deal with that. Just a 2-2 blocker will. Yeah. But I don't have a lot of cards in my deck that deal with Marchesa, that deal with Child of Valara. That's why cards like Maze of Ith are amazing because they're doing what a swords would do, but just on a cre- creature-by-creature basis. Yeah. Like, unless they have Hexproof or whatever. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, save your swords when the person is about to equip their Swiftfoot boots onto a problem. Like, in that case, it might be a good idea to do it because... It's That's like, actually a really good point we didn't talk about. But yeah, somebody has Lightning Greaves or Swiftfoot boots. When they go to equip it, sometimes you just have to bite the bullet and do it because you're looking at your hand and you're like, I don't... As soon as it's Hexproof, I'm... I have no control over that yeah, thing. Yeah, dead in the water. No yeah. one else has the uh, the light ha- Arcane Lighthouse to get rid of it. Um, I, I do that a lot. lot where I'm like, I don't know. It's too scary. Yeah. You may attack somebody else with it, I, but I, at this moment, I can't be sure. So I have to do this. Unless they make assurances, of course. A lot of times they will. They'll go, no, 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 it's not coming at you. And you go, how many turns? Yeah. Because if it's like, you're going to attack me next turn with it, that's still not good enough. And, but they might go for three turns. Three turns is a long time. That, yeah, if they exactly. do that, I'm like, okay, cool. And then 
I know 100%. Well, not 100%, but I know that I'm not getting attacked for three turns. You can play accordingly now, like totally ignoring that person. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point. Being able to put someone on ice, kind of be like, all right, cool. Like I have a shield of immunity in terms of spell playing here. Mm -hmm. And I know that you'll ignore me because I ignored you. It's like we're just going to both charge parallel into the battlefield. And at some point we may turn and look at each other, but not right now. Yep, which means that's going to really, really inform how you you play moving forward. And it can really help you narrow down how your decisions need to be. Yeah, or uh, make it harder because everyone else sees what's happening. Hold on, what's going on with this? (laughs) But then they got to worry about uh, Animar swinging at them. That's true. They got to worry about that craziness. You can't swords Animar though. Yeah. All right, so that is our episode on sandbagging. We will, of course, always talk about this sort of thing, and I'm sure we can go even more in depth. Let us know uh, in the comments, in the comment section below, on YouTube, on the page. Yeah, below wherever you're listening below to it, which is a lot of places it. these days. Tweet at us. Uh, let us know if there's something that we missed or something that you guys like to do strategy-wise in terms of sandbagging, or maybe even the case where what we said was wrong. Because, again, everything is so situational in EDH that there's always going to be exceptions to the rules. And there's no set rules in this game, which is why it's so great. Um, Or if you guys know any sweet political tricks to help sandbag. We need to do another politics episode. Yeah, I got to get my... It's our six-minute abs, and we haven't done it in a while. (laughs) I got to get my politics out there. All right. Oh, boy. You heard it here. I know. Well, you know, I have to play more to really even realize what I'm doing you, when you, I do you it. You literally have to take notes as you're playing, which is what I had to do for... Oh, really? What episode was that? 43, I want to say. That's Wait. probably one of my favorite episodes we've ever done. So if you haven't listened to the Politrix and Politips episode, I would encourage I you to go back to tricks. it. Politics Politips and Politrix. Come on. Come on, Josh. Get it right. Poli- <laughs> political tips just, and tricks or something. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So... Oh, I'm, I'm looking forward to doing another one of those. It's yeah. my favorite subject. Yeah, as soon as we get to play a little more and uh, formulate, because this whole episode came from one night of playing. Yeah. I was just like, oh my gosh, I need we need to talk about some things, guys. We- <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, we need to teach these gosh. people. <laughs> yeah, not even teach. It's just like, just get the, get the word out there. We need to have there. a discussion about it. We need it. to have a discussion yeah. about it, yeah. And let me know if I'm wrong, because of course I'm sure that uh, strong opinions always are met with uh, stronger opinions, I find. All right, right. time for the end step where we talk about something cool outside of the world of Magic. Jimmy Wong, you have had a lot of time to think of something cool. Yeah, and the one thing I thought about was something that directly pertains to me and is like a self-advertisement, so woohoo. Let's do it. Go actor Jimmy, just just branding himself all over the place. I do a cooking show, guys. Oh, Uh, yeah, this is cool. I enjoy cooking quite a bit. Uh, So does Brian David Marshall. I would love to someday, Brian, if you're listening to this. Oh, you guys should should get him on Feast of Fiction for like um, uh, some magic-related. Yeah, I was thinking you could do literally the color pie. Where you just do a pie and you have like the mana. That is the awesome. Thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the show I do is called Feast of Fiction. It's like one of the many things I do online. Uh, and it, this is a show with my good friend Ashley Adams. And we cook up foods from sh- like comic books, movies, TV shows, TV shows old books, video fiction, games. video games that don't exist in real life but exist in that property. So anytime you like hear about a delicious feast in Harry Potter or whatever, we could make something from the... The, the candy cart that rolls through. It'd be like Hogwarts making Turkish, Turkish Delights or Yeah, something. Turkish Delight from yeah. Chronicles of Narnia. We've done all that stuff. Uh, it's on YouTube at Feast of Fiction. We've been doing it for like four years now. Hasn't been um, that long. Yeah, it's, it was one of like the first projects I did after I stopped doing music on YouTube. Um, so you guys can find that all online there. I would love BDM. It's I know you invited me already, but I couldn't make it out. Next time in New York, I'm sure we'll uh, cook something up. I know he it. emailed us and go, hey, are you guys going to happen to be in New York like next week? Yeah, we're doing a commander-based oh, episode. Well, I'd like, like oh, to. Oh, no. yeah. So BDM also has a, uh, a cooking show too, which I guess we should also shout out. He's um, He does a lot of really cool stuff. I love Brian. After getting out to hang out with him in a... Uh, at Comic-Con. At Comic-Con, yeah. It's been that was great. awesome. I'm a big fan now of BDM, clearly. I was a fan before... 
So his show is called uh, Kitchen Table Gaming, and it, uh, they, they usually play, like, magic and stuff around the table, but he does lots of really, like, like great recipes. He obviously puts a lot of love into it, too. And, and yeah, they, so do they actually do a fiction. different game each time. So one time it was a board game, another time it was Commander, next time it will be who knows what, and he just comes up with some recipes for some foods yeah. that they'll eat uh, that are related to the game that they're playing. Yeah, and they all have pretty fun cool. Names. And um, I think one of them was called S'mores to Plowshares, which was that's great. Yeah, uh, yeah, S'mores to Plowshares, which is like s'mores on the cookie, which is a great idea. But going all the way back to your show, Jimmy, Feast of Fiction, Fiction we, you guys should definitely check that out. Also, I was amazed when I was at VidCon how many pictures of you with that apron on there were. Oh. <laughs> It's like everywhere. Just spread around, yeah. Because yeah. there's, yeah, because we're represented by a couple of different uh, groups. So. Every turn, we turn and, and my nieces would go, "Hey, there's Jimmy, <laughs> <laughs> just hanging out, you know, and just hey, there I am." <laughs> yeah. So we're uh, this this whole year we're doing three episodes a month, so you can check them out. And uh, of course, if you guys have any recommendations, I want to do some kind of magic related food. Um, I, I'm thinking the color wheel pies is currently. That's in a my pretty top. good one. Is there a food that's mentioned on multiple cards, maybe, or in one of the certain planes? I don't know. Dragon fodder. I just make some <laughs> goblins that you can eat. It's kind of gross, <laughs> but it might be awesome. Yeah, it's red. You could do an edible token of sorts. I don't know. You could do something fun. Maybe our listeners have some cool suggestions. Yeah, maybe I'll do a pop tart that looks like a card that you can play, and then when it dies, you eat it, or you just eat it. <laughs> like forget all the playing it's that's a pop tart man yeah. it's gonna be delicious you put whatever stats you want in it it's a 5-5 five five that's delicious creature type delicious <laughs> yeah so go ahead and check that out it's all online we'll put the links to my show and as well as uh, BDMs so you guys can check that out alright make sure to listen to the Masters of Modern podcast our sister podcast Alex Kessler and Ben Bateman talk about modern the Ooh. format and all things competitive magic you can find them right next to us on rocketjump.com under the podcast tab and you can follow them on Twitter at the MMcast. Our editor for the show, editor, editor, our editor. Come on, come on, Jimmy, you got this. Eli, don't edit that out. Don't it's Eli. Don't order it. Don't order it. Don't order it out. Eli Cuevas is our editor. Edit. Dang it. <laughs> Special thanks to Jeffrey Palmer at Living Cards MTG. He does the animations on our videos. You can find our videos at YouTube.com/slash The Command Zone Podcast. We do a video for every episode. It's really fun. You can check out all that. We show the card names and stuff. You can watch it at work. All right, that does it for this episode. I like that over enunciation. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. And we will see you next time. Pizza. <laughs> Pizza. The Leaning Tower of Pizza. Pizza. Okay. Thank you for your attention. For further inquiries, send an email to commandcast at rocketjump.com or ask us on Twitter at JF Wong and at Josh Lee Kwai. See you later, alligator. Greetings, humans. <laughs> <laughs>